the sight of life and forgiveness, freedom even. Freedom not for us to live lives for ourselves, but the freedom to live our lives for Christ. Fully, unreservedly, joyfully, with peace and contentment. Lord, in any way that we are not seeing you in that way today, please help us. Give us eyes to see you that way. We might behold your, your glory and your beauty, your majesty and your wonder, and be satisfied in you, and then to, to think upon the fact that this one who is infinitely glorious and righteous and, and holy and perfect in every way has then loved us with a steadfast, immovable, unshakable love through the Son. And that's testified to us by the Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, help us to rest today, to receive the truth of your word as it being true and authoritative for us, and that we might take its truths and apply them and plant them deep within our hearts, Lord, to live them out. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, music team. Thank you, Derek, the scripture reading this morning and for the songs. Lead us and prepare our hearts, we hope and pray, to receive God's word. And praying for the Lord to help us um, to continue to receive it and to receive it joyfully as well. So we're breaking into Romans chapter 5 this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles there, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's where we'll be this morning. We'll be considering God's hand in hope. Our passage today is uh, largely revolves around the idea of hope. We're borrowing that from last week. We're bringing it forward. Abraham in hope did not weaken in his faith. In hope, he believed against hope. We saw that last week. And we're going to continue to expand on this idea of hope today. And seeing God's hand in orienting, orienting us towards hope. And God centralizing hope in the life of the believer, and then God sustaining hope in us as well. And so the question is, is would you describe yourself as a person of hope? And what are all the things that you think go along with hope? If you were to be, if you were to come across a person that was really abounding in hope, what kind of person would they be? Probably a person that is joyful and happy, a person that has peace and contentment. A person that is desirous probably to share that hope and to live, to show that hope to be true for them. So could you say that that's true for you? Are you a person of hope? Do you abound in hope? And when people come across you, they're like, man, that's a person of hope. Um, if I'm being honest, I've got, a, I've got some work to do in my life in that way. But it's good for us to consider it this morning. Um, just in Romans, the book of Romans itself as a whole, you know, chapters one through four are usually kind of put together as being really doctrine and, and teaching heavy. 
on some things and applicable to the believer and to the non-believer. There's a lot that we've covered in the first four chapters regarding doctrine and theology and things that are true for mankind, for the believer and, not, and for the non-believer. And it all kind of culminated in this doctrine of justification by faith and all that was wrapped up in that. I mean, Paul spends pretty much all of chapter four teaching about the, the doctrine of justification by faith and its centrality the necessity of it, the importance of it to the life of the Christian. And he uses that then platform of justification by faith to launch us into chapter 5. And the contents really, if you look at the book of Romans, of chapters 5 through 8 of being the things, some of the most wonderful promises and words of encouragement to the Christian are found in Romans chapter 5 through eight. And he takes another turn when we get to chapter nine, but you know, we'll get there when we get there. But in chapter five, he begins to talk about the things that are specifically applicable to the Christian. And he opens it up with what it is that we have available to us and what every Christian has as he opens up chapter five. So today we wanna take a closer look and examine the significance of hope in the Christian's life and God's intent on cultivating hope within us. Be sure of that. God is intent on cultivating hope within your life. Uh, we just don't always, as the text will show us, prefer the way that he does it. But he knows what he's doing. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Would you read along with me? And then I want to draw our attention to a few things. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, not more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want us to see this morning how the text reminds us of God's hand at work in our lives regarding hope and how he is determined to cultivate it within us and conform us into people of hope that are abounding in hope. I read this passage last week, and you can turn there if you want, but it's in Romans 15, 13, or you can listen. But listen intently. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, God is defined in this text as the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's a couple things in Romans 15 13 that are parallel that we see in Romans 15, 1, 1 through 5. Hope, God's hand in it, peace, Holy Spirit, and, the, and his power in helping us to abound in hope. And so I think it's important for us to see that the text itself tells us that God is a God of hope. And I don't know, like when you think about God and, and defining God and identifying who he is in your mind, 
where hope comes into the, into the picture, whether it comes into the picture at all. But God is the God of hope. And he would be intent that we would be filled with all joy and peace in believing in Christ so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Like, are you a person whose hope is abounding? It's, it's, it's jumping out of you into the lives of those who are around you. People, I mean, we have Christians, right? I mean, we have the most reason to be a hope-filled people. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Like, you and I in Christ are assured of eternal favor and grace, and nothing can change that. Like, just meditate upon that thought alone, and you should see and feel the hope within you welling up. And to be able to tell other people about this God of hope and the source of your hope and being able to give an answer for the reason of the hope that you have within you. So we want to look at a few things in particular this morning. Number one, from verse one, we want to see how God's hand orients us towards hope. God's hand in our hope and how he orients us towards hope. Verse five, um, chapter 5, verse 1, there's two things that we see we have so that we might do something. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and again, this whole thing is building upon the foundation of justification by faith. The work of Christ and our justification by faith is the groundwork for our peace, and it is the groundwork for our grace. If you don't know Christ, you don't have true, lasting peace, and you're not standing in his grace. But if you do know Christ... You live in a world, you should be, we live in a world of peace and grace with him. And that orients us towards being a people of hope. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the groundwork, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in in verse 2, through him. So he's making the point that justification and what it is that we have, this peace and this grace, comes specifically through Christ through knowing him. And I, guarantee, I, I say this, the more that you know him, the more that you meditate upon him, the more that you think of him, the more that you read of him, the more that you're satisfied in him, the more that you desire in him, the more peace you will have, and the more astounding this grace will be that you know that you stand in. This peace and this grace orient us towards being people of hope. Derek read for us this this morning, but I want to mention it again, Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 18. What did Christ come and preach? Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus' gospel message is a gospel message of peace, of reconciliation. I think what's incredible is how God so wonderfully reminds us and shows us how thoroughly good he is to us. He, we have this reality of justification by faith. So there's been this judicial de- declaration made, like we're no, I'm, not, I'm not guilty anymore. I'm innocent because of the work of Christ. But that doesn't necessarily bring me onto good terms with the one that has declared me righteous and justified me. But peace, 
That's God going further, not only declaring, okay, you're no longer guilty, but now there's peace between us. I have brought you to me. It's not just a judicial act. It's a relational reality that the believer lives in, peace. And if we live in peace with God now through Christ, then what did we live in before Christ? What's the opposite of peace? War, conflict. Like that is what, that's what the position that every unbeliever is in. That's a position that I was in. It's a position that you were in before coming to know Christ. Outright war and conflict with God. Now, we might know a lot of non-believers, and we wouldn't say, well, it doesn't seem like they're at war with God. But I'm telling you, they are inwardly. They are rebelling, and they hate God. To be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God, James would tell us. But he has not only justified us and declared us not guilty, but he's saying there's no more conflict between us. I've done away with the hostility. And we notice that it's all his work. Like the reason why we stand in this position of peace is because he pursued it. He came and preached peace to us. He drew us to him. We were not like looking for him, right? Romans 3, we're not looking for him. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one does good, right? You go on to read, there's just, just toxicity comes out of us, comes out of our mouths against God. He comes and preaches peace and he brings us and he, and he restores this peace between us and him. Peace is literally defined as a wholeness. It's not being splintered or shattered into various pieces. In Christ, we have this, we have this unity. We have this wholeness with him. In my sinful rebellion, I'm, I'm broken and I'm shattered. And he comes and picks up all the pieces and puts them back together and makes me whole and then brings me to him and establishes peace between me and him. Not only do we have this peace that orients us towards him, but we have access into this grace in which we stand. We've been given access. It's the, abil- it's the ability to approach face to face. Not only has he justified us by faith and declared us innocent, he said there's no more beef between the two of us, and then he, and then he turns your face to his, and he says, look at me. You ever do that with your children? And do that with my children when I want to teach them something or when I want them, really like when I, when I want them to know that I love them, you know? Lift your chin. Son, look at me. I love you. Trust me, don't you know that I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm saying. This access to we, that we have to God is this face-to-face, as it were, interaction where the children of God are brought to him in this loving, adopted relationship where our Father looks upon us and not only declares us not guilty, but has peace and grace and has given us this access to approach his throne of grace, as Hebrews would tell us, so that we might find help in our time of need. He knows, oh, he knows you're needy. He knows we are needy people. And that's why we stand, this this idea of standing means, it literally means that he's accomplished, he's brought us into this position of standing with him that we remain in for the rest of our days. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, prior, it's a, it's a prior action with ongoing results. And once he brought you into that place of peace and grace, you remain in that peace and it has and that grace and it has ongoing results for you. You never lose as a child of God that's truly his. If you've truly been justified by faith, you never lose your standing of peace and of grace with God. Now that's, like, if that doesn't orient you towards hope, I don't know what does. He's, he, he's welling up within us this idea of, of having peace with God, this reconciliation, having grace, his divine favor in which we stand, in which we will always stand, in which we cannot lose. And these two things are really important for us as we get into the rest of the passage, especially verses 3 through 5, when, he, when we see how he orients us towards being people of hope through peace and grace. But then secondly, how God's hand centralizes hope in the believer's life. And he really does that in two ways. We see that in verses three through five. Our second point, God's hand centralizes hope. God's hand orients you towards hope by, by giving us peace and grace in our lives that we, that we don't deserve, but that we can't lose, which we didn't earn, but it all comes through Christ. Like justification by faith continues to raise its head to reveal how wonderful and beautiful it is for the believer and the firm rock of which we stand upon in the doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. You contribute zero. It's all based upon the work of Christ. He, Because of his work and his atoning death, sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection, faith in him alone reconciles you to God. Forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal, peace, Righteousness, grace, orients you towards being a person of hope. But then the work isn't done. God's intent, his hand is at work in centralizing hope in your life. And he does that in two ways we see in our text. By giving us a clear view of the object of hope. And by taking me through the process of cultivating hope. And I boast in both of them. Look at what he says here. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice, or rather it should say, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And more than that, it should say not only, not only, do I boast in the hope of the glory of God, but I boast in my suffering, or we boast in our sufferings. So God's at work and orienting towards hope and centralizing hope into our lives by giving us, telling us what the object of our hope is, the glory of God, which we see in verse 2, and then being committed to cult the process of cultivating that hope in my life, which includes suffering, endurance, and character. So let's look at the first one. He gives me a clear view of the object of my hope. I boast in the object of my hope, which is the glory of God, right? We see this. Um, verse 2, and we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now rejoicing, it, it communicates um, the idea but not really the heart behind it, because Paul has used this word boast previously. He's used it in chapter 2, 
verse 17 and verse 23, only negatively. Chapter 2, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and then in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So he's using the term in Romans 2, 17 and 23, boast, as the verbal kind of like bravado that the Jew had in the law that they had. Look at us. Look how great we are. God chose us and he gave us the law and look at how wonderfully we keep the law and hope in the law and boast in the law, right? Like they're, they're verbally, outwardly boasting so much to the fact where they would actually, they're trying to draw people in under the yoke of the law, right? That's how much they boast in it and believe in it and how much it adds to their pride and their ego. Paul is saying that in that way, that's how they boast, in Romans chapter 5, he says, we boast, but we don't boast like that in the law. We boast in Christ. The boasting of the Christian in Christ should be the verbal, like, humble, proclama- unashamed proclamation of the work of Christ in our lives. That's what the believer boasts in. I would, Paul would say, I boast in nothing except for knowing Christ Jesus. Like, Christ Jesus became the object of his boasting. And he says that we, we boast in the glory of God. Do you boast and do you rejoice in the glory of God above anything else? How, how much do you want God to be glorified in your life? How much do you really want God to be glorified in your life? Because... If the glory of God being enjoyed by you personally sounds like the best thing ever, and the glory of God being displayed in your life for other people to see sounds like the best thing ever, then we should rejoice also in the process that he takes us through in the glory of God being treasured and displayed, which we'll get to here in a second. But first of all, you've got to wrap your mind around the idea that your boasting and your, your, your boast and your hope is in God's glory, in the display of his glory. You want to love the glory of God as much as God loves his own glory. You want to treasure his glory. You want to desire his glory. I mean, you want, if, having, if God being glorified in your life is what would happen in your life, and you could say, that's the best thing that could ever happen in my life, then you're on the path to being able to boast properly in the hope that you have. Because hope is really centered upon the glory of God being displayed and enjoyed and God being worshipped because of it. That God's glory would be our greatest desire. That God's glory would be our greatest delight and that God's glory would be also our greatest treasure. Can you really say that, God, what I care most about is you being glorified in my life? Is that what you want above all things? If so, then your hope is in the right place. But we have competing desires, right? I mean, I'll be honest. I do want God to be glorified in my, in my life. There's also other things I want in my life. 
and they compete with the glory of God. And my hope is oftentimes pulled over to one thing or over to another thing. And it's really only when I'm able to like catch a vision of the glory of God, maintain that, pursue that, and want to continue to cultivate it in my life, which I really feel like as a believer, I'm, I'm doing what I should be doing. I've said all the time, and I'll continue to say, like, pursuing a, a life spent of acquiring and cultivating and having a vision of the glory of God as a life well spent. Because guess what you're going to enjoy for eternity? The glory of God. We may as well create and cultivate an appetite and a taste for it now. Because it's what we will behold for all of eternity. Uh, commentator Robert Haldane said, The view and enjoyment of God's glory is the hope of believers. But not only do I boast in the glory of God being displayed, being delighted in, being desired in my life, but I'm boasting in the process that God takes me through in order for hope to be central in my life. And listen to what he says. Verse 3. Read verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we boast, same word as in verse 2, we boast the verbal, audible proclamation of rejoicing and boasting in our suffering. Wow. That, if that is, I don't know of an, an, a more anti-Christian message than boasting in suffering. The world we live in is anti-suffering. It is doing everything it can to eliminate suffering, to pad our lives with comforts and convenience. We do not like to suffer and we don't like hardship. And that thinking has infiltrated the church to its detriment. I want us to take a moment right, real quickly to, to look at some of the things that the Scripture says about suffering. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. I'll read 21 and 22. The disciples had gathered about, entered into the city, and the next day they went to Barnabas, on with Barnabas to Derbe, Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know that word suffering in Romans 5 is, is actually the word here used for tribulation? That through many tribulations... We must enter into the kingdom of God. The believer is appointed to tribulations because tribulations are part of the process in centralizing hope, biblical hope in your life. God doesn't want just hope to be you know, something that's kind of orbiting around your, your Christian life somewhere. He wants, he, he wants hope to be firmly lodged 
within your heart. For you to be a person of hope and to be a person that abounds in hope. And the, and the surefire way to hope is through tribulation. You know this word tribulation, it means to be hemmed in. It means, it means being squeezed. It means feeling pressure. And it largely refers to internal pressure. There are other words in scripture that, that refer to like outside, outer man, persecutions that we experience. And this word tribulation, it can mean that too, but its focus and intent is on the inner man. It's the squeeze of life when you feel inside. When words like panic, despair, worry, anxiety, fear, anger, regret, confusion, when words like that define life for you, you're feeling the squeeze. Most notably, the Christian feels the squeeze in life because you're attempting to live a righteous life in an unrighteous world. And you're feeling the squeeze and the tension that comes in just being a Christian and being an exile and a stranger in this life. Now, why do you think he's given us peace? The inner comfort, the inner wholeness, the inner tranquility, the tribulation and the peace, they're fighting for the same territory. But because we've been justified by faith, we are a people that have the peace of God dwelling within us. And when the squeeze and the tribulation of life comes, we, can, we don't have to freak out. You can be people that keep it together. Specifically, I know I can keep it together. Why? Because it's doing something in my life. In the providential hand and care of God, the vice and the squeeze of tribulation will only go as far as he allows it. Never any further. But he will, but he will keep it. I think of, last week I quoted um, part of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, I think of another line from it. It says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In the heat of life, in the tribulation, in the hardship, he is doing something. He's refining you, he's trimming the fat. He's preparing you for, for eternity. Only skinny people get in. The path is narrow. The gate is narrow. The door is narrow. And he's trimming off what doesn't need to be there. He's centralizing hope into your life. And he does that by, by purifying and, and cutting away what's not necessary. Yet you think you need things and you're hoping in those things. And when he cuts it away, guess what? Hope doesn't leave. It draws inward. To where eventually we are a people that are abounding in hope because it's so centralized in our lives. He's cut everything else away. There's nowhere else for the hope to go. And so it resides in, within, in the core of who I am. And so we're appointed. But Jesus said this in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I mean, wow. That's so amazing. He says that when you read that text, you go, oh, man, that must have been so great to hear him say that to them. No, he's saying it to you. He's speaking to you. You insert yourself. I read this, Nick. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, Nick, you're going to have tribulation, but Nick, take heart. I've overcome the world. You look to me. I've overcome. You know that you already know I've won. You already know that I proclaimed it is finished. I've given you my peace. You stand in this position of grace. The flame is in your life. I am refining you. Proverbs 17 tells us, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold. The Lord tests the heart of his children. He would go on, though, later in Romans chapter 8 to say this, and this is one that's well known, 835. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Why does he continue to emphasize this idea in different aspects of this, parts of the scripture regarding tribulation? Because he knows how weak and frail we are. He knows how tempted we are when, when the squeeze of life sets in to turn and run to other things. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, verse 37, no. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's busy refining us the tribulation leads to perseverance, in which I covered last week. But you cannot learn to press on if you're never pressed upon. Perseverance is, is necessary. Tribulation means that you're, you're learning to persevere through it. You never learn to press on unless life press, uh, presses upon you. And so what does God do? He presses, he squeezes so that hope becomes more central and it doesn't become put in other things. And perseverance leads to character. Godly character is our proof of justification by faith. The question is, do you want to be a godly person? I mean, this is the process. Character. Tribulation, perseverance, character. Do you want to have godly character? It's one path. So when you pray, God, make me more like Jesus, do you, do you know what you're saying? You're saying, sign me up for tribulation. Help me persevere. I mean, this is what the Christian life is about. But yet it's something that we, but yet it's still something that the believer wants, right? I, still, I know that to be like Jesus means I have to go through tribulation, yet I still want to be like Jesus. Either I, there's something broken with me and I'm crazy or this is the, the ministry of the Spirit of God working within me and within you. Perseverance produces character. And character, lastly, produces hope. And here we are starting back again at where we end up where we started, back at hope. Tribulation centralizes hope by cultivating an appetite for that which is eternal. 
It's those who are hungry. Not the full. Proverbs 27, 7. The one who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Even the bitter experiences of tribulation are sweet because they are providing and proving perseverance and character and hope within me. Thirdly, God's hand orients me towards hope. God's hand centralizes hope in my life by fixing me upon its object, his glory, and then the, the cultivation, the process of it, which is suffering, perseverance, endurance, and character. And then thirdly, God's hand sustains hope in my life. There's just no way I would, could, you or I could continue on in some of the hardships that we face in life as Christians unless God sustained us, which is what he does and what we see here in verse five. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How does God's hand sustain me? By his love. When I'm in the tribulation, I'm being squeezed, I can say, I can still look to God and say, it's okay because you love me. I know that this process is part of, for my, of my good, for your glory. It's preparing me for eternity. And you love me. You love me in it. You love me through it. You love me despite my stupidity in it. And his love remains because it's poured out into, us, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Like he doesn't just drizzle it out. Like Amy got me this pour over coffee for my birthday. And it's like drizzle, drizzle, drizzle. That's not God's love. Like he pours. Sometimes I've done the pour over too much and then it like comes out of the top and that's what God's love does. It's like he continues to pour it. And you know what I find amazing about the text? He puts it where it needs to go, in my heart. Like I'll go outside, I'll go and I'll ask my kids, can you please go water the flowers? And I'll go look outside and Micah's like this. He's like looking at the flowers but the hose is here pouring water on the ground. He's not putting it where it needs to go. And, I, and I'm like, he tells us in the text God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Again, emphasizing the inner nature. Where does the peace reside? In the inner man. Where does the tribulation take place? My character development happening in the inner man. Where is God's love poured out into me? In the inner man, in my heart. He puts it where it needs to go. And he does it through the ministry of the the Holy Spirit. And because when he gives me the Holy Spirit, it is an eternal deposit. The love constantly flows. As long as I've got the Holy Spirit, I'm receiving the love of God. As long as you have the Holy Spirit, you're receiving the love of God. That sustains you to be a person of hope through hardship. How can I continue to have this hope and give a reason for the hope that I have within me when life is wringing me out of everything that I got? Because God loves me. And because that's good. And it's sufficient. And sees me and carries me through. God's hand keeps me unashamed. You never have to be ashamed for desiring God's glory above all else. You never have to be ashamed of hoping in him, regardless of circumstances of life. 
God's hope does not put us to shame. If you're a person of hope and it resides in God being glorified, don't be ashamed of it. And his love continues to sustain our hope in him. Keeps me unashamed and hoping in God's glory through tribulation and trials because the Holy Spirit assures me of the one who is doing it within me and the goal that he has for it in my life. So a few exhortations and encouragements before we close when we go to the communion table. Do you know how to interpret what you are experiencing in your life? Do you know how to interpret your tribulations, your trials? Have you grown used to misinterpreting God's good use and grace for them in your life? Know how to properly interpret your tribulations. Learn how to view and understand life through the truth of Scripture. This passage is just calling out for us to, like, to, to take on, hold on to these things and apply them with the peace and the grace and the hope and the trial. I mean, he's talking about real every day. He's talking about real life stuff. Life gets hard. Life hurts. And we still be people of hope. Do we understand life through the lens of the scripture and how God tells us life is going to be? Do you understand sufferings as part of God's plan and accomplishing his redeeming work in you? And then learn what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says is that you are facing trials so that you may be equipped to help others who will face trials in their, in their life as well. Your, your, did you know that your trial is not just for your own good and your own sanctification and God's glory, but it's to equip you to help someone else at some point? God doesn't waste anything. And then see how God's peace and grace orient you towards hope and how God's love sustains you in a life of hope as well. We're preparing to partake of the communion together now. Um, if you're visiting North Hills, this is, and you do know Christ by faith, and by faith alone, and justified by faith, and we do invite for you to partake of the table with us. This, I think, is just such a wonderful place for us to go after every sermon. The place where I, I look upon the elements, I see the cracker as it represents the body of Christ, the juice as it represents the blood of Christ. What was offered up, the atoning sacrifice that was offered up on my, for my, on my behalf, that paid for my sin, that, ma that makes peace mine and hope mine and grace mine in which I stand. I'm partaking of this feast as one who is hungry, hopefully as one who is skinny, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, spiritually speaking. So the elements are on the back table, and you can get those and return back to your seat for some prayer and some meditation, and we will partake of the communion elements together here shortly.